Hello everyone and welcome to IFG Live, the new online offering from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White and I'm Deputy Director of the Institute. Today we're discussing Parliament and Coronavirus, Democracy in the Age of Social Distancing. And I'm delighted that we've got a fantastic and expert panel here to share their thoughts on how Parliament is making the transition into the digital era. So yesterday, on Wednesday the 22nd of April, we saw the first hybrid sitting of the Commons, with MPs participating both online and in the Chamber, and the Lords conducted an entirely virtual session behind closed doors. And I look forward to talking to the panel about how it went, and about the challenges and opportunities for Parliament looking forwards about how to use digital technology. I'm also really pleased that lots of you have sent in your questions for the panel via Twitter and email, and I'll be weaving as many of those as possible into our discussion as we talk today. So to our panel. First, I'm really delighted to welcome uh, Karen Bradley, MP, who's the new chair of the Common Procedure Committee. Hello, Karen. Hello. Karen, can you just tell us what the role of the Procedure Committee is and why it's so important at a time like this when the Commons is really rapidly changing the way it goes about its business? Yeah, so the Procedure Committee is a select committee. It's just like all the other departmental select committees. But our role is to scrutinise the way that public business is conducted in Parliament. So that is uh, how we conduct things in the Chamber, in Westminster Hall, in our committees. Um, uh, we're sort of the guardians of the standing orders. And I think people thought that procedure was an interesting topic back in uh, the days of Brexit when procedural innovations were happening on what felt like an almost hourly basis at times. But um, I think having seen the biggest procedural change uh, for 700 years uh, this week, uh, I suspect now that people will realise the Procedure Committee is relevant at all times and that it is a particularly interesting time to be part of it. Indeed. Second, I'm delighted to welcome Sir David Nartzler. Hello, David. Hello. David, you were Clerk of the House of Commons until last year, and one of your key roles was obviously to be the Chief Procedural Advisor to the Speaker. Your successor now, is he being asked complex procedural questions, or do you think that going digital is more a question of logistics? Well, I'm sure he's being asked a lot of complicated questions, and I'm sure giving um, extremely cogent answers. Uh, so it isn't just logistics. The, there are issues uh, of law and of procedure. Uh, and as we move incredibly rapidly forward, as, that, as both houses have been doing, I'm sure there will come up a few points where there are deep breaths when people say, well, now what do we do? Um, I give you one very small example, and I'm sure they've all thought of this. Uh, how do we deal with the signification of royal assent, which by act has to be actually within the uh, at a sitting of the House? How far can sittings of the House uh, do things um, where they're meant to do something by statute uh, if no one is entirely sure if it is or is not a, a full sitting? So these sort of questions are um, they're actually important, but they're also procedural. Quite. And finally, I'm delighted to welcome Times journalist Esther Weber, who is a very close follower of the Commons and of the Lords. Hello, Esther. Hi there. Esther, I noticed you tweeted this morning that you're missing the opportunity to simply hang around, hopefully in Parliament, picking up gossip. How much has your job changed in the last month or so? Yeah, I think that's a challenge for all journalists, because um, with some of the reporters who have to be in the gallery, so that's mainly PA and Hansard. It means there are only 12 spaces uh, for the rest of the gallery. And um, 
so we're all having to do our work remotely and there is obviously much less of the hanging around in corridors going to see people for a quick coffee maybe buttonholing someone who didn't want to be buttonholed um, and we're all having to adjust to, to doing things a bit more remotely and by appointment. Well, I'm delighted to give you the opportunity to talk to us today. Um, and I thought I'd kick off the discussion by asking you all what you made of the first sittings yesterday. Um, then we'll move on to talk about what further developments we might see further down the line, including maybe digital voting. And finally, we'll, we'll have a discussion towards the end about what, what of any of this might stick. Karen, can I start with you? I think you were in the chamber yesterday. Um, you were one of the up to 50 MPs um, allowed into the chamber. How different did it feel as an MP? Oh, it, it felt incredibly different. There was, uh, there was no noise. There was not, the, the atmosphere wasn't there. Um, it was, you know, we amused ourselves by looking at people's, what people had in the background of their, um, uh, of their contribution. You know, what, what, what ornaments do people have? But I think there, there's a point that I just struck me today on the, the day after that, you know, we can all see how the technology worked and everyone will have a view as to whether it was a, a good spectacle or not. Um, we can also have a debate as to whether it's going to enable proper scrutiny. But I think also there's a psychological challenge. And it struck me this morning when I woke up um, and the sun was shining and it was lovely. And my immediate feeling was this was a Friday because I was in my constituency home. I've been in Westminster. I therefore must be about to go and do a Friday's work. And of course, you know, as we all do, you wake up in the morning and realise that life is not what it was and we've got different restrictions on us. But it also struck me, one of the reasons it felt like today was a Friday is that yesterday had felt so like a Thursday in Parliament, in that the, the corridors were empty. It was very quiet. Thursday is a much quieter, more um, civilised day, I suppose. You know, Wednesdays is the big set piece, uh, bare pit moment of Prime Minister's questions. And we, we haven't had that feeling. Instead, what we had was a very quiet day, uh, a day for debate that was very consistent essential actually there was not there was very little uh, uh, people feeling that they needed to speak up against any of the proposals that we were debating and as I say the corridors are empty there isn't that sense of bustle and hustle and you know going to central lobby we'll all know that feeling after Prime Minister's questions when you go into central lobby and it's packed and it just wasn't there and, and so it, it was it's a very strange feeling and I think there's a real psychological challenge now for all members of parliament as to how we adjust our way of thinking and get used to this new world. I was thinking about that because I, I imagine as MPs a lot of the time you know you're bouncing your thoughts off, off other MPs who as, as Esther was saying for journalists you don't necessarily make an appointment to see them but you bump into them into the in the corridor and now you're all sitting on your own in your constituency offices you don't have that sort of element of serendipity which shapes your your thinking. No absolutely there's no spontaneity and there's no interaction and and I think that actually People have realised this week that that's one of the reasons why MPs need to, you know, we are our constituents' representatives in Westminster. We we are supposed to be in Westminster. We parlay. Parliament is to talk. And um, and we and you do bump into people. I said it in the chamber on Tuesday when we were talking about this. They, 
this is a very suboptimal situation because we get things done by interacting with other MPs and ministers and others. And at the moment, that's not happening. So uh, we'll need to find a way to get used to this new new reality and new ways of doing things. And I'm sure we will do, but um, it's going to be a challenge for a little while. Esther, have you had a chance to look at what the Lords were doing yesterday, at the transcript of, of, of their proceedings? Well, I just wanted to start by saying a quick word about PMQs yesterday, because um, obviously journalists were taking a huge interest. You've got this, um, what is a massive news story on two levels. So one, there's Dominic Marr filling in for the Prime Minister, who's been seriously unwell. And also you have Keir Starmer doing his first PMQs as leader of the Labour Party. And there was something incredibly surreal about the fact that this was taking place, as Karen said, in relative silence. Um, And it was sort of mano a mano. Um, And so so that was kind of a spectacle in itself. And what was notable was that really it all went pretty smoothly. I don't think anyone knew what to expect. Um, and as for the Lord side of things, I I caught up using Hansard yesterday, um, but I understand there are now audio recordings available. Um, and I think the observation about things being a bit more orderly possibly is even more striking on the Lord's side of things because they are a self-governing house. They used to interrupting each other, talking over each other, making unexpected points. Um, And inevitably, we will lose some of that. David, what did you make of it? Were you reflecting on how different it may have been for the staff who were running the chamber? Um, No, more I was reflecting, as I'm not, unlike um, Esther and Karen, I'm not a key worker. So I'm just resigned to watching all this from my drawing room, which is not that tempting in the sunshine. But um, I I think what struck me is it went extremely smoothly, and I expected that because of the, the incredible work that's been put in by the digital teams there um, and uh, with, the, with the screens up, um, I, I think we can over-concentrate on what we're losing, on the deficit. Uh, it's better than nothing. It is, as Karen says, suboptimal. Um, I was reflecting what was missing was not just the interaction between members on the same side and on opposite sides of the House and the general sense of reaction to what they're hearing. Um, also, what was missing with the ministerial teams? I mean, there was only one ministerial question time, wasn't it? It was the Welsh team, but it was just the Secretary of State. And part of ministerial question time, which is useful, I think, is to see the other ministers, which I gather is not going to happen, which I, I do think is a pity. There were, I think we lost topical questions. In other words, questions of which notice has not been given, uh, where something from left field can come up. I mean, visually, the proceedings um, as a spectator are, are obviously pretty dire. <laughs> I mean, they're not that exciting at the best of times. And I, and I know that, you know, they're playing football in empty stadiums. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Or I know they're playing darts now in, in professional dart players' 
houses where they put up their own darts boards. Why anyone would want to watch that defeats me. But this, <laughs> this of course, matters, unlike darts or even, I'm afraid, football. Um, and what is happening is the questioning, rather similar to the press conference questioning. And so I, I'm just impressed about the fact it's happened and it's all going to get a little different and we will develop. Um, and that the Lords and Commons are doing it differently, which we may come on to, which I think is fascinating uh, and really helpful to see what they might learn from one another, uh, how they've gone down slightly separate routes. David, is there any any uh, sort of procedural reason why we've not seen topical questions? Because those have been seen as one of the best innovations in recent years and enabling backbenchers and opposition MPs to, and indeed government backbenchers, to, to raise questions which have, have literally just come up and, and get an instant response from government? Well, th there's none known to me, and, and I'm cautious, I'm, I'm just a retired official, but I, I, I think it's fair to say Prime Minister's questions are topical questions. In other words, you don't know what they're going to ask until they ask it. Um, the departmental ones, the subject matter of, of supplementaries is tied to the question. Now, if they're going to have, as, as we had this remarkable innovation of a full list of exactly who would speak when, which is carefully orchestrated to give party balance, but also have the random element from a, a selection of, of members, um, I, I can't myself see why there would be a problem with doing that with topical questions. And as you rightly say, it was seen as a plus. I mean, obviously, they're all tending to be on COVID, although actually the first House of Lords virtual question, which Esther, as a keen watcher, will have noticed, was on the composition of the House of Lords. <laughs> a perennial um, issue. But it was ever that. Yes. Karen, yes. do you have any so, reflections uh, on this uh, issue of topical questions? Well, I think actually when we get into the, um, the, the the longer departmental questions, we had Wales questions yesterday, which is only a half hour, and I'm not sure there's traditionally topical questions during Wales questions anyway. So my understanding is there will be topical questions during the uh, longer departmental questions, so Home Office, ju uh, Justice, things like that. Although I think that initially the proposal is to have uh, questions done by two departments at a time, half an hour each. So we'll have to see how that works. Certainly the original proposals for questions was that, was that they would all be only topical and there'd be no substantive at all. And the, the, the reason for that is really that um, substantive is where MPs are able to ask a follow-up supplementary question, not just the original questioner, but you can bob in the chamber and ask to come in. And I think there'd been a fear that uh, how could we make substantive questions work? I have to say, I think the speaker's going to have very strong thighs if he's going to have to stand up for every single question to announce the questioner, wait for the substantive uh, response, and then stand up again for the questioner, which is something the speakers don't normally do that much standing up. But my understanding is there will be topical questions. And obviously, we had effectively topical questions in the statement that was delivered by the health secretary following prime minister's questions. So it is possible. The difficulty there is, is, is how the tech works at the moment. And David's quite right to say <laughs> that this is better than nothing, but it's not perfect yet. And the tech has got to, has got to be evolved. So 
I personally want to find a way we can get that spontaneity and that immediacy because, you know, I know that, for example, at the beginning of this crisis, I had a constituent whose son was was stuck in South America in a, you know, country where the borders were being closed every hour in a different direction. And she didn't know what to do. She contacted me. I got the email half an hour before the Foreign Secretary was standing up to do a, a statement. And I could go into the chamber, Bob, and ask the question on her behalf. And we got we were able to get a flight for her son to get back to the UK. Now, that is simply not possible under this system because you have to put your name down. You have to be drawn out of the hat in advance. You know where you're coming in the proceedings. There's no bobbing. There's no interaction. There's no spontaneity. And so we've got to find a way of resolving that because otherwise we simply aren't going to be able to react to the circumstances as circumstances change. And in this crisis, they've changed very, very rapidly. And- the other thing, of course, that we've been seeing for some weeks now is is select committees where, you know, obviously within their subject areas, they can ask uh, these questions and much more detailed questions. And they've been online um, using uh, uh, mostly Zoom, I think, uh, technology um, all throughout the recess, perhaps been busier than, you know, in any other recess that I can remember. Just Karen, again, do you feel like their scrutiny is enhanced potentially by being able to be conducted online or do you think there are still problems that need to be sorted out? I think it's still there's still problems that need to be uh, sorted out. You know, there's always going to be teething problems with this kind of thing. But I think it's good that select committees, we, we got the orders changed. Actually, it's one of the things the procedure committee did before we rose for the Easter recess was to change the standing orders to enable more flexibility around the way select committees work. Because there's a real fear that as we were rising a week earlier than we expected to, which was the right decision because it was quite right to protect staff and members of parliament. And in particular, I think the staff of the House of Commons, let's be clear, um, when parliament sits, there's an awful lot of people that need to be behind the scenes uh, doing the work that's required to, to make the, the machinery work. And so for the protection of the staff and protection of members, it was quite right to rise early. But actually, that would mean that we would have had nearly four weeks without any scrutiny of government. So changes to select committees were really important. Um, but, uh, you know, with all of this, it's it's uh, it's getting those teething problems, working out what they are and trying to find a solution to it. And you You've got to give great credit to digital services and the house authorities for working at the speed they have. I also do want to say as well, um, a great, a real praise to the clerks of the house. And the clerks of the house work incredibly hard. So the clerk on my committee works very long hours. And normally the Easter recess would be a time of uh, a little bit of a, a respite from it. And I'm afraid, I think all the clerks and everyone else has worked double hard over this Easter recess and, and you know, great credit needs to be paid to them. Esther, have you been watching some of these select committee hearings? What are your observations on how they've been going? Um, yes, I have. And I think it's been a really useful kind of um, uh, prefiguring of what's happened in the Commons this week. So as Karen mentioned, it's enabled MPs to keep scrutinising the work of those involved in the response to the crisis. Um, and it's also given everyone else a sense of how, how the thing will work uh, via Zoom. So, yeah, I think, I think that has been really useful. I think when Karen mentioned 
teething problems um, and I don't want to be too negative as I know journalists are accused of being but something that's been mentioned to me is that possibly for understandable reasons at the moment things are quite constrained so obviously we have a list of speakers and time limit so I think the time limit yesterday on the health secretary's statement was about 45 minutes and I think if things continue to go smoothly uh, from a technological point of view there may be a bit more pressure on um, on some of those constraints to be loosened or reconsidered um, because there's just the beginning of a feeling that some of these constraints favour the government. I mean, that, 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 that's something I was reflecting on in relation to, to select committees as well, because you know, we have seen a lot of select committees launch inquiries. And I mean, I think the time limits on uh, uh, um, the business in the chamber have been mostly to do with the capacity of the technology. But there is a balance to be struck, isn't there? David, I don't know what you think about this, between you know the government, the executive actually getting on and dealing with this crisis, and then the time they spend coming to Parliament and, and being held accountable. Do you think we're going to be able to strike that balance appropriately? Well, I think it is difficult, and I suspect the public will sense that, that um, if they constantly see uh, the Secretaries of State evident for things like health and and business and enterprise in front of select committees and in the chamber. Um, I'm sure they respect Parliament for carrying out its scrutiny function, but I suspect they will think, as as you've hinted, that it's really important to leave them time to get on with it. I mean, this isn't a war, but but it it is a um, it is an, a national crisis of some sort, and Parliament has to show some restraint as well as its determination to operate. I, I think it does, and, and the balance is being found. Um, by the speaker and by the the usual let to say the leader of the house and the opposition and so on are i'm sure conscious of that um and if select committees um I, I, one doesn't want them to be in a situation where they're being open to any criticism for doing too much scrutiny i, I don't think that's likely at the moment i also think it's important they're allowed to carry out scrutiny of non-covid events um i see on monday there is um and Mr. Gove is giving evidence on the negotiations on the UK's future relationship with the EU. Um, and the Public Accounts Committee is hearing evidence on gambling regulation. So personally, I just think that's great that, I mean, we remember there is a world going on that isn't COVID-19. Um, and that uh, if Parliament loses track of, of all of that, then it's also not doing the nation any favours. I think that's a really interesting point. And actually, we were doing some analysis of the last parliament um, at the Institute. And, you know, for lots of people watching parliament, it, it, they would have been forgiven for thinking that parliament was doing almost nothing other than talking about Brexit. Um, but in fact, when we looked at select committee inquiries, we found that only a fifth of them were Brexit re related. And actually four fifths, you know, and that's, that's a huge proportion. Um, you know, it's very unusual for any single topic to be so cross-cutting and to occupy the time of so many select committees. But in fact, four fifths of the inquiries were actually going on to all the other important issues uh, which are concerning MPs and their constituents. I thought it was quite an interesting stat. Okay, I think now we'll move on to think about 
not what we've been doing so far, but what more we might do in Parliament um, and what further developments we might see, including the potential for digital voting, which was obviously something prefigured yesterday when the Commons agreed in principle to the idea of remote voting, although not in terms of any detail of what that scheme might look like. And obviously, at the moment, having the houses operating is much better than them not being there, as we've said. But there's only certain types of business that are possible. Esther, does it feel to you as though Parliament is really able to hold the government to account in these circumstances? Uh, I mean, there is a problem here, whichever way you look at it, because the government has been forced to postpone basically any really controversial legislation so the big one at the moment is the immigration bill and everyone understands the situation of course um but it can't it can't go on forever and and i think from speaking to people this week and last week i think it's moved from a situation where maybe the government was getting a bit of grief for being suspected of not wanting to move quickly enough on digital voting um, for fear of setting a, a precedent to a situation where I think the opposition and the government are in a similar place and everyone wants this to to go forward. Um, so, so, yeah, I think... I, Obviously, it is a big kind of gaping hole at the moment, the fact that MPs can't vote on legislation, but everyone's hoping that's going to change very quickly. Because, Karen, in some other countries, the government has essentially said they're not going to legislate, um, they're not going to take their sort of wider legislative programme forward, apart from um, things which are really essential in relation to the uh, coronavirus pandemic. I think, the, for example, the New Zealand uh, government has said that. Do you think uh, it's appropriate for the government to be to be pushing on with, with legislation in these circumstances, even if some form of um, digital voting can be found? Is the scrutiny going to be um, uh, of the same quality as normal? Well, I mean, there's a lot of points to make in, uh, from that question because uh, there's a number of issues that, that arises from this. So next week, we're going to see the first substantive uh, debates on bills. We've got three bills that are going to be debated, but all of them are going to be done on what's called the nod or nothing. So uh, if the, if somebody objects to any of the bills, it won't be a that the bill is lost at second reading. It will instead be one that the decision is deferred. And um, I think that's quite right. I think it's highly unlikely that there will be anybody objecting to the three bills we've got. Um, although normally, you know, the one on Monday is the finance bill. And actually, that would normally be a contested second reading. But certainly on Tuesday with domestic abuse uh, bill, which is being brought back for a second time, uh, having been originally debated and had its second reading during the previous parliament. And then on Wednesday, I think we've got fire safety regulation bill, which is again, one that's not contested. But there comes a point where government has to, to do business that is contested, whether it relates to COVID-19 or it relates to the business of government. So the finance bill, for example, we have to have a finance bill because otherwise we can't carry on levying income tax. The second reading has to be within 30 sitting days of the budget. So that's why it's happening on Monday. But that bill has to have gone through both houses of parliament. Now, 
it's a money bill, so it's not a massive uh, piece of work in the House of Lords. But in the House of Commons, line by line scrutiny of the finance bill is something that has to happen. And we need that bill to receive royal assent. And David's already touched on the issues that may arise from royal assent. But that needs royal assent by October. So we have to get on with that bill. We have to start making progress on it. But there is no way that we can, that any opposition or even any, you know, government backbenchers can just put a finance bill with all the different measures in, in it through on the nod. Um, things need to be tested. My background is I am a tax accountant and I would be absolutely devastated in my previous role if measures that were introduced in the finance bill did not get proper scrutiny and proper debate. But then you open up the all the questions. So not just around how the voting will work, the remote voting, which we've given permission in principle for, but actually uh, we did get a, a, the, the leader of the House to agree that the that I, as chair of the, the procedure committee, have to write to him with whatever proposals are the final proposals and my, our view on them as the procedure committee before remote voting can start. Um, so, so we've got a, in principle to do it, but we've not yet worked up the system and checked the security and tested it and all the other things that need to be done. But then let's just go to the challenge of how we go to line by line scrutiny of the finance bill in a committee, which would normally last maybe six weeks, meet every Tuesday and Thursday, sit for five to seven hours a day, depending on the uh, what's agreed between the whips, have a number of members taking part, maybe 19 members of parliament, including the minister and the shadows and the whips and everyone else. So a number of backbenchers are going to have to look forward to the idea that their Tuesdays and Thursdays in their home office are now going to be taken up with them sitting watching a finance bill taking place where we need to have spontaneity we need to have the ability to 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 ask questions we need the ability to intervene otherwise you're not going to get the scrutiny that a finance bill needs and voting in committee is is can be quite complicated can't it because you've got lots of votes which are sort of contingent on each other you know you need to know whether you're making an amendment's been made or not to a bit of the bill before you decide whether you want to keep that bit of the bill so we'll have to have a very slick system in place for remote voting to do that sort of complicated scrutiny well, if you're doing it on committee of the, on the floor of the House, for the whole House, which the finance bill traditionally would have two days in committee on the floor of the House, you're absolutely right that you need to have the ability to have those amendments looked at quickly and, and, and then the division done in a way that it consequential amendments, we know what the outcome is. You know, Do we need to put the consequential amendment because has the original amendment carried? In, in upstairs, of course, it's actually a roll call. So people are asked their name and asked of whether they're voting either or no. And, and as a former whip, it was always difficult enough to get people to remember whether they were voting aye <laughs> exactly. or no. Because if you think about it, you go through an alphabetical order and your name is called. And if the person before you was shouted aye and, you, and you're supposed to shout no, it's sometimes quite difficult to remember. Now, that's hard enough when you've got everybody in the room. It's going to be nigh on impossible when everybody is doing this down the line. And, you know, I think the real point that we need to make here is that the risk for remote voting lies entirely with the government because the government whips have a have a way of making sure people are in the chamber, making sure they're near the chamber, making sure that they vote the way that they want them to vote. And and you know, but getting people physically into a room is a, is a actually makes it quite easy for whips to get things done. 
doing this remotely where you're going to need to know that all of the people that you need to vote for this, all members you need to vote for this, and I suspect we'll have much higher participation in votes than you might do physically in the chamber, um, and making sure they all vote the way you want them to vote is a lot harder if you're doing it remotely. Yes, I can imagine there's a lot of uh, head scratching going on in the WIPs offices. David, you wrote a, a blog this week um, talking about that your your thinking on on digital voting and what the main options were. What do you think? Um, what do you think is the is the way forward yourself? Well, I think for votes in the House, I, I'm afraid having, as you said, scratched my head, but in happy retirement, I can see no alternative to remote voting which ensures that each member of the House has a chance to cast his or her vote the way they wish to do so. Um, and I think you, you can mitigate some of the difficulties which are seen with, with ideas of uh, mass uh, pairing. In other words, a member from each side agrees not to vote. Um, that can only take you so far. You could have an extension, of, of course, of the proxy system, uh, but again, I, I fear that would become block voting, which is what the National Assembly of Wales did. They simply, and you can see this on screen, they asked the leader of each party to cast their party's votes. And I, I don't think that would be acceptable um, um, in the House of Commons. Uh, so it seems to me that remote voting for the chamber is coming. Um, and I know systems are being trialed and they won't be utterly perfect. Uh, and of course, the Procedure Committee has a huge role to play in giving um, confidence to members that they are as good as they can be and that they're reliable. And there are difficulties with not knowing when the votes are going to be. You can't have members just spending all day in their home office on the off chance of a snap vote. Um, so you may have to have votes at a more foreseeable time or put off to a foreseeable time. I, I think on voting in public bill committees, which Karen was talking about, I don't personally see that as the biggest problem with the public bill committees. As she says, it's roll call vote anyway. If your name begins with a B, I guess that's a disadvantage, but it doesn't have to be done <laughs> that's alphabetically. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be done alphabetically. You can use the United Nations system where they vary the letter of the alphabet with, with which each uh, roll call starts on a random basis, <laughs> which must be terrifying. Uh, if you're used to being towards the end. But no, in all seriousness, in the public bill committees, which I see the finance bill is to be sent to, um, I am a little anxious as to how those could work. They are debating committees where, as she says, interventions are the most important thing, not a series of questions and answers on a predetermined script, nor indeed of a succession of set-piece speeches, which is why I fear what the second reading will be in uh, in hybrid proceedings with no interventions. Um, but in a debating committee, um, you do have a real difficulty uh, with interruptions and um, with understanding what's going on. So it's, it's of course, it's not insuperable. Um, but but I, I'm a little alarmed that we're going ahead on it quite so quickly. I don't know when the first public bill committee will be, but it will be a real challenge. And I don't think the answer is necessarily more committee of the whole House, because that tends to be higher level scrutiny. I mean, obviously, it has the advantage that all members can participate, but you don't get that same quality of line by line scrutiny as you do in a bill committee. 
Well, it has it has the huge disadvantage that all members can participate. <laughs> if you're talking about a relatively narrow bill in which they've no desire to participate, and you would have to have them signing in, if you see what I mean. Um, and the advantage might be that you could use the existing technology within the chamber, but have it understood that only um, those uh, 19 or 20 members who are uh, nominated to the committee would take part, and you wouldn't expect any of them except possibly the minister and possibly not the minister to be there. Um, but but th there may be advantages, and that's, I'm sure, what thought is being given um, to the sort of practical issues of where you hold public bill committees if they're going to need the same you know, mutual visibility and audibility of participants that you are able now to get in, in the chamber. Hannah, perhaps if I can just come in again on the domestic abuse bill, which really concerns me that uh, if we can't have a line-by-line -line scrutiny uh, upstairs committee on the domestic abuse bill, I fear that we will simply not get the the the, the legislation that we need. Now, this is a bill which, as a former uh, minister in the Home Office who had responsibility for this area, I feel very strongly that we need this bill and we need it quickly because it's something that was started back in, I think, before this time last year, it, it started its process and uh, and it's been put off because we had the general election and we're coming back to it. And there is consensus on it. But I think if you listen to the second reading debate that happened in October, which was actually during the, the Conservative Party conference, it was during that prorogation that we were brought back from. Um, if you listen to that, it, you can see there that on both sides of the House, there is real concern about how some of the measures in the domestic abuse bill will be will be managed and how they will actually operate. And and David's right when he says about the, the committee of the uh, whole House being one where actually having all members present is perhaps at this sometimes a disadvantage, because what we don't want is grandstanding and uh, members making the same point they made in the second reading debate. You can't let the committee stage be a rehab of the second reading debate. The committee stage has to be the opportunity for members to really get into the detail. And I have great fear about that bill in particular, that if it isn't taken upstairs, if it isn't done properly, if there isn't proper scrutiny, we simply won't get the legislation we need. And, and also, of course, this is the kind of bill where the House of Lords would have such an important role because of the sector expertise there is there. And again, if the House of Lords aren't able to scrutinise it, then we're not not going to get the quality of, of law that actually those victims of domestic abuse so desperately need and deserve. And Esther, I'm not quite clear from the public pronouncements that have been made, and I'm hoping perhaps you are, how the Lords thinks it's going to handle legislation because they've said they're not they're only going to do um, debate uh, online, but they're not going to make any decisions. Does that mean they're going to sit sometimes to make decisions? Um, yeah, it, it's really it's really difficult. Um, because they, yeah, they've announced they're doing online sessions for questions, for private notice questions, for statements, but they're continuing to do legislation in the chamber, um, and they did that earlier this week, um, and it was a relatively, it was a bill inspiring a lot of consensus, but it was second reading and as Karen says when they move on to committee stage 
that's when you'd expect the Lords to get into the real nitty-gritty. And the, the sort of the understanding they seem to be operating on at the moment is that they'll only need a few peers to come in for legislation to do it in person. But I'm afraid that just doesn't seem tenable with really major pieces of legislation such as this one. Um, so we'll have to, we'll, we'll, as with everything, we'll have to wait and see um, from our end, from the journalist's end, put a bit of pressure on to ask what what is being done to arrive at a solution for this. Watch this space. I think we'll move on now to talk about our final set of questions, which are about um, how much of this might stick. I was just interested, Esther, in whether you've got any sense of whether there's we've gotten any indication yet of what the public think of these changes. For example, do they like Prime Minister's questions without all the shouting? I don't know. Reviews were mixed of PMQs yesterday. I think everyone's aware we're still feeling our way, and that goes for the MPs too. But I think the overwhelming feedback from readers um, and from other members of the public is that they just want MPs to be getting on with doing their jobs the way that everyone else in the country is. I think that's the real emphasis and the feedback. So it's kind of saying, okay, if we have to make do amends to some extent, or find some imperfect but workable technological solution, then yes, we should go for that. So I think it's broadly supportive, and I think there will be a bit of um, scrutiny of anyone who feels as though they are above the rules or that they absolutely have to um, make unnecessary journeys. I think those will be the people who are viewed less favourably. Karen, I'm wondering whether the sort of um, concern about atmosphere and, you know, what's what's missing from, from Prime Minister's questions might be more of a concern to people in the Westminster bubble than it is for people at home watching. Well, I mean, you know, there's always criticism of the way Prime Minister's questions works and, and, and the behaviour of members at the time. But, you know, it has to be put, pointed out, it's probably the only bit of parliamentary proceedings during the week that are viewed by people beyond the Westminster bubble. Um, so you know, somebody somewhere likes it, even if uh, it sometimes isn't the most edifying experience for those of us there. Um, I think... Constituents want to know that their MP is properly representing them and they want to know that their questions can be properly answered. And only time will tell whether we can get to um, a level of scrutiny and uh, spontaneity that enables that to be the case. Because I think this the, the, the technological 
difficulties that mean that you can only only contribute if you're on the on the list to do so that you will own that you know as David has said that this will be a sort of succession of pre-written speeches when we get into these second reading debates next week with no interaction and no debate I wonder how long it will be before the public and and that probably means the journalists who are watching this say actually this isn't working and it isn't giving us the kind of um uh, scrutiny that is needed. We've got to make sure that all all parliamentarians, and that is that is those on both sets of benches, whether they're government MPs or uh, opposition, are able to get their points across and are able to make sure their voices are heard. Um, and only time will tell how that works and and whether it will be sufficient. I think I think um, Esther makes a good point about the public expect their MPs to behave in the same way that they're behaving. And that's why the social distancing in the chamber was so important, not just because Public Health England tell us to do it, but there has to be a really visible way of showing to the public that we are all observing the rules and there isn't one rule for one uh, and something different for others. And certainly, um, Whilst it, you know it was it was nice to be in the chamber. Look, we all we all spend lots of our lives trying to get elected in order to be able to have earned that right to sit on the green benches and speak from them, and then to find that there's so little space on the green benches where anybody can sit because of social distancing. It is quite a shock to the system, and I, I'm sure all MPs will want to get back to normal as soon as possible. But we all have to respect the fact that that isn't possible at the moment, and we have to set an example. For the public, um, that is absolutely crucial, and we have to demonstrate and be the most, I suppose, visual way of demonstrating that to the public. And I'm afraid we're running out of time, but David and Esther, can I just ask you for your thoughts on on what, if anything, you think might stick, might prove actually to be a good idea, and that MPs might want to retain, as Karen says, after proper consideration, after hopefully um, we pass through this crisis period. Well. <laughs> I'm, yes, there are a couple of briefly. I think what has emerged is is the governance of the House of Commons um, has adapted rather oddly to these events, and the House of Commons Commission, a statutory body which deals primarily with staff and expenditure, but in, in includes on its membership some of the key people, particularly the leader and the shadow leader and the speaker have taken a role that in any other parliament would have been fulfilled by a bureau uh, or a business committee. Um, to, and that, I think, is is something that may make people think it'd be quite helpful to have somebody like that anyway uh, that can help guide the House in its thoughts. We now have a situation where if the three largest parties put a motion down uh, as to how to organise debate, that motion is regarded as having been agreed without the House having to vote on it. And I think that will happen on Monday for the first time. There's a motion on Monday's order paper. Um, I'm not sure that's a, a good thing, um, but it may be quite attractive to the House to be told what to do um, by the, the leaders of the three parties. Um, and I, the, the second thing that I think may, may attract people is what Karen referred to as the change in the rotor that instead of departments coming up for questioning every five weeks, we're now having two departments a day. Uh, and, and obviously, they're briefer each time, but they come on more often. I can see members saying, I quite like this. I don't want to have to wait another five weeks before I get a chance of a substantive oral to a particular sector of state. So there are some quite sim perhaps small things at the margins, which now they've happened, 
people will say, do we really need to return to, to the previous situation? And finally, on the accessibility, if the site of members participating fully in proceedings from all over the country, from their kitchens or studies or workrooms, if that encourages a wider range of people to think, gosh, I think I could do that. Um, you know, I, I don't see myself in this great chamber, even if I end up there, then that would be one quite remarkable good thing that might arise from this whole episode. I'm afraid we have now run out of time, but I want to thank the panel um, for a really rich and interesting discussion. We've been listening to Karen Bradley, MP, Chair of the Procedure Committee, Sir David Nartsler, former Clerk of the House of Commons, and Esther Weber from The Times. And if you've enjoyed this episode of IFG Live, please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss another one. And do have a listen to the IFG's regular weekly podcast, Inside Briefing, which is also available wherever you get your podcasts.